Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Abdul Latif. The subject of today's podcast is a topic of wide interest for our audience. We're going to be discussing the history of the idea of the Muslim world. Our guest on the program is the author of a new book out from Harvard University Press on that very subject, Jamil Aydin. He's a professor in the Department of History at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Jamil, welcome on to the program. Thank you. So the title of the book is The Idea of the Muslim World, A Global Intellectual History, uh, and it traces the genealogy of what is often taken for granted as a concept today, which is the idea that Muslims all around the world, on every continent, except for Antarctica, are joined <laughs> together by a sort of uh, being Muslim. Uh, and what we'll be talking about in this conversation today is how that idea is actually very relatively new in a global historical sense, really an artifact of um, imperial competition during the previous two centuries. And we're going to see how it's changed uh, throughout time and talk a little bit about what's uh, in that new book, The Idea of the Muslim World. So Jamil, to start us off, let's just make it clear what we mean when we say the idea of the Muslim world. What is the object of your study? The object uh, of this study is this puzzling phenomenon that racialization of Muslims rely on the notion that Muslims all over the world are united primarily by their religious identity, that they are Muslim first and everything else next. And at the same time, if this is like we can see in the Trump Trump's Muslim ban, to imagine mm -hmm. that there's a Muslim world and you can ban the, uh, the Muslims coming from that world, many Muslims are also proud of that unity. And the short, very short misconception uh, that exists uh, by Muslims uh, that Muslim societies were united since the time of Muhammad and they became divided because of European colonialism and nationalism. And I will argue the opposite, that actually Muslims have always been living under the rule of different empires and kingdom, kingdoms, and it's impossible, impractical, and also not desired or not uh, expected that they will be united. But ironically, they were seen united, and in fact, they were politically ruled by a fever units in the late 19th century. So European mm -hmm. colonialism... Um, in in a sense, united the Muslims. Ah, that's a racially, yes. Yeah, that's a fascinating argument that you make in the book, and you know it's interesting how you set it up, right? That this is a this is both sort of a, a racial construct made by Europeans to cast Muslims as others and sort of put them as a monolithic whole, but it's also a concept that is really important for a lot of Muslims today, politically and spiritually, and we'll we'll talk about that as well. Within the Islamic vocabulary, we have the concept of the ummah, the entire community of Muslims, which at first glance seems like a synonym for the idea of the Muslim world. How are the two concepts related or distinct? So now many people are using it synonymously, especially Muslims. But we have to remind ourselves that uh, before the late 19th century, uh, even today, ummah always meant different things. Sometimes it was used uh, uh, as a synonym for nation, as a community. Um, and we have to recognize the polyvocality and diversity of Muslim intellectual traditions, 
the, the different vernacular Islams, uh, the race of literacy, the, the very diverse ways Muslims interpreted their religious traditions, uh, and the very diverse ways they uh, articulated their politics. We have forgotten that Muslims lived in a close proximity with non-Muslims in different forms and empires. So throughout history, of course, the, the term Ummah has been used. But if you take that um, hadith that many Muslims will know, that um, Prophet Muhammad will gather his Ummah around himself uh, in the hereafter, um, that notion of Ummah does not connote a geopolitical unity or a racial construct. Is yeah. that pious Muslims will be rewarded for their uh, piety by being with Prophet Muhammad. So the old Ummah across generation of thousand years will get together. It's not, uh, uh, it's not at this time on a map, all the people irrespective of their inclinations or their piety, they're just automatically a member of the Ummah is not assumed by that. Um, and we, we have to remember in, in, in pre-modern times, if you were in, a Muslim in Nigeria or Indonesia or in other places, how many different layers of, of political identities yeah. you may have uh, that that imagining the world is, is a kind of a, a one single global unit and, and imagining yourself in that unit uh, not through their locality your locality or your empire but through your religion first uh, through a, as a racial construct is very important mm -hmm. and I, I I would insist that initially it was Europeans coming uh, around the world, let's say the British uh, coming to Africa, seeing Muslims in Nigeria, then India, Indonesia, and in Ottoman Empire, they are just marking them as Muslims first, is a choice that, that was made at that point. They could have marked them as brown people first, um, which then put the Hindus and Muslims together. So these choices also mattered a lot. Right no, now. and it's very fascinating. I mean, early modern world, um, you have, of course, polities all over the place that are that have various Islamic valences and lots of different types of Muslim communities belonging to different lineages in terms of their practice and their beliefs. So not that different from Europe, very yes. much like diverse and heterogeneous in terms of religious practice. But in fact, you're sort of arguing that this global encounter that allows imperial actors like the British to kind of see Muslims as a monolithic group changes um, slowly the framing uh, of the question in a way. Yeah, so we, we have to remind that Ummah was always imperial, um, uh, especially the, the, the moment of the Mongolian invasion and the emergence of these large empires, uh, you know, the, the Ottomans and the Mughals and the Safavids. And, uh, but the, these empires were also not the majority. There were, uh, you know, there were hundreds of hundreds of different Muslim dynasties and kingdoms with different inclinations. Um, and when we get to uh, even as late as uh, 1800, it's just a Napoleonic uh, moment. There are so many kingdoms and empires with so many different political inclinations. And so in the book, I talked about uh, Tipu Sultan's uh, letters to the Ottoman Sultan uh, during the time of, of Napoleon, the Napoleonic invasion. So he's uh, making this gesture that I'm fighting with the British. Uh, would you, could you help me you know, morally uh, or also militarily? An Ottoman sultan's uh, letter back was, is urging him uh, that he should make peace with the British. And the British has uh, both Muslim soldiers and Muslim allies, including Nizam of Hyderabad, uh, and, and trying to convince him that the French, which was Tipu Sultan's ally, is, is a real enemy uh, because the Ottomans are fighting for French. 
Um, the, this correspondence is, is quite interesting, right? There, there is no assumption uh, that there's an automatic Muslim unity, and it's impossible. And there, there is politics. The Ottomans are, are involved in a, a certain politics, and it's expected that Tipu is also involved in a certain form of politics. And this is continued later on, and I, I noted in other articles that in 1857, uh, the Ottoman government uh, sympathies at this elite level uh, lied with the British, not with the Indian Muslims and Hindus who rebelled against the British. Um, if, of course, if they had more information, they may have sympathized with with the rebels. Maybe there are other Muslims, uh, you know, in, in the Ottoman lands. They may have they they now sympathize with the Muslims. Obviously, if you if they look back, but we have to remind ourselves what what the situation was, uh, was. and also remember the moments like the Crimean War. Uh, which, which reflects the imperialness of that. So the book also makes the suggestion that uh, when the European empires expanded over large Muslim territories, the first response was not pan-Islamism. And that makes us, should make us suspicious that why, when, when did this emerge? Why not in 1830s, but 1870s and 1880s? Right. And there's there's a couple layers of assumptions there that we have to overcome. One of them being that you know, religious identity is necessarily the primary political identity as well, like coupling these kind of different layers of, of identifying as Muslim um, in the past uh, is quite difficult, as you show in the beginning of your book. In the, in the early 19th century, these are uh, quite separate things. There are some earlier incidents in the book which kind of mirror the Tipu Sultan sort of moment. So I'm curious how you fit those in. So the idea of the Ottomans going to Gujarat in the 16th century or going to Aceh in the same, like within a few decades afterwards? Uh, our colleague uh, who, who did his PhD at Harvard, um, Giancarlo Casale, wrote a very beautiful book and, and one of the best books in Ottoman history on, on this Ottoman age of explorations. Uh, but, and where the Ottomans in that particular moment as well uh, did something with the notion of, of they are the, the strongest uh, Muslim dynasty, and they have some sort of responsibilities to support uh, small kingdoms and, and merchants in Indian Ocean uh, against the threat of the infiltration or uh, the new-coming Portuguese uh, forces. Uh, but as Giancarlo shows, this is a very temporary moment. Um, there is no, uh, in the details of the story, uh, there is no assumption of a Muslim unity. The Ottomans uh, Ottoman um, uh, Grand Vizier could be very brutal to to the Yemeni um, Sultan. Um, the Muslims are not automatically uh, allying with the Ottomans. Some of them could ally with the Portuguese. Some don't want to have anything to do with it. And and that moment also passes, right? That um, uh, hundred years forward, we have a new configuration of power. The Mughal Empire is there, um, and uh, then there is no need for some sort of, of an alliance. And that this alliance is not assumed, that the, the Ottomans are not necessarily going there out of their religious obligations. They have also some sort of military, commercial considerations. And, and Giancarlo's book uh, and other books in the early modern period is a good reminder that, there, that people read Muslim texts, their Muslimness is unquestioned. They're as Muslim as contemporary Muslims of, of whoever, whatever inclination you have. Uh, but but we, we should not assume that there's this, this stereotypical assumption that modern notions of nationalism 
or Westphalian territoriality emerged in Europe and expanded. And somehow Muslims, out of their religious convictions, always resisted that because they believe in Ummah and the Muslim unity. It's nonsense that there are Mus the politics that the Muslims have is, 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 is very contextual, very historical. It changes. And, and a Muslim can be as imperial as Queen Victoria, as socialist as Lenin, or as nationalist as Gandhi. Uh, and, and so we, we should not forget, uh, forget these things, that these, these narratives is, is a fiction, is an invention. And in different moments in history that, that people resort to these narratives for very different political reasons. Right, and that's where the issue of racialization comes in. There's this idea that Muslimness is somehow primordial, um, preceding a lot of the the um, modern political ideologies in the 19th and 20th century. This kind of false notion that this is something that's deep, more deeply ingrained than maybe other ways of identifying. Yeah, and that uh, that might lead that led the imperial elites to actually misdiagnose uh, a condition. Um, so after the uh, Indian. Uh, revolt against the British in 1857. For a long period of time, Britain did not face uh, any uh, strong Muslim military resistance. But their assumption that the Muslims will be disloyal to us because their religion uh, makes uh, them um, fanatic and kind of resist the British uh, was, was not reflecting any reality on the ground. There was only some sort of rebellions that they dealt with in Somalia and Sudan, which was initially against the, the Egyptians and the, and the Ottomans. Um, majority of the Muslims under British rule in India, which is almost 40% of all the Muslims in the world, uh, reconciled with the reality of the empire and, and the queen, and, and they, they fought in the, in the different British military forces, um, so that uh, the Muslims are being united, and they're fanatic uh, about their religious identity, and they might any any time rebel is, is part of the trope of racialization. Um, and, and the book is also making this case uh, that in the late 19th century, a couple of important devel developments occurring at the same time. One of them is, is that racialization through religion brings argument about the inferiority of Islam as a, as a religion, but also uh, uh, the white supremacy means that the Islamic civilization is inferior and fanatic, and there's mm -hmm. all this thing about Renan and others. And this racialization by religion allowed Muslim modernists to talk back in a, in a very brilliant way, in, in their own way, to, to show that they're not inferior, they have a civilization, they contributed to the rise of Europe. And Islam is a global uh, world religion and with, own, with its own set of humanistic values. Um, so the, the, the intellectual struggle is occurring from then up to today in, in many ways. But at the same time, the, the geopolitics is very complex, that, um, that the Ottomans is the last kind of big uh, Muslim dynasty ruling over Christians, also ruling over holy cities, um, feeling racialization in a different way in international affairs, in international law, in unequal treaties. And so they ally, even though they are an empire by themselves, they ally with the racialized colonial subjects in, in the kind of global scene and form new connections with them. But not in an anti-imperialist manner. I think that's one of the, the arguments that, um, that I, I myself was surprised, that up to limits pan-Islamism, the supposed pan-Islamism, um, 
should not be read from the perspective of the Young Turk 1914 Jihad. And that's, uh, um, that's, that's a big uh, misconception at this point, that Abdul Hamid imagined the, the new idea of the Muslim world uh, as, um, as an enabler of the imperial peace and, and a reason to sustain the British Ottoman alliance, not to challenge the, the British Empire. All right, we've got plenty more conversation. Stay tuned. We're here with Jamil Aydin talking about his new book, The Idea of the Muslim World. You're going to hear a quick musical break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Abdurrahman Latif here with Jamil Aydin talking about his new book, The Idea of the Muslim World, out from Harvard University Press this year, 2017. You can check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll find a link to where you could purchase or check out that book, uh, as well as some other podcast episodes uh, related to today's discussion. So, Jamil, you've set up a context within which during the, let's say, mid-19th century, uh, through imperial and colonial encounters, an idea of a larger Muslim world, uh, as, as we've defined it, sort of a both a racialized and, and a politicized um, notion of a, of a Muslim world is taking shape. Yet, if we look at the Crimean War with the Ottomans and sort of the imperial competitions during the mid-19th century, it's not the most salient way of, of identifying, um, even among... Uh, predominantly Muslim polities. And as we know from some of the prior work on the Ottoman Empire, including your own work, there does start to be somewhat of a shift during the late 19th century, and we've, we've already briefly mentioned Sultan Abdul Hamid II. Uh, so some people have seen Abdul Hamid II as this, as this quintessential pan-Islamic uh, ruler, anti-imperial ruler, who's trying to renovate and restore the notion of the caliphate and, and taking all of the undertaking all of these policies of like Islamicization in the Ottoman Empire. So very much a supporter of the notion of the Muslim world in a sense. Uh, how do you see the situation? How do you read that? Are, are we projecting too much onto Abdul Hamid II perhaps? Or, you know, where, where does this book place in the, in, in the narrative? This, this is very important, I think, in the first big geopolitical configuration of, of the idea of the Muslim world. Abdul Hamid is, is a main actor, but not in the way contemporary Muslims uh, remember the narrative. Um, I will say that um, Abdul Hamid's main desire was to uh, sustain and uh, justify a British-Ottoman alliance. Because he started his reign with a traumatic defeat against Russia, uh, and in in Doksanucharbi, the 1877-78 war, where uh, where the Ottomans lost uh, uh, the, the majority Christian populations in in, East, uh, in the Balkans, um, 
And I think just before going to that war, there, there was an assumption that even though Russia militar- is militarily stronger, uh, the, the Britain could come to our aid um, um, like they did in the Crimean War. I think that assumption uh, played a role in, in the decision to go to war, although it, it wasn't always in, in Ottoman hands. I mean, the Russia also yeah, forced exactly. war on them. Um, but then Britain didn't come, and I think that it, 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 you know British neutrality or, or, or delayed entrance has something to do with, with with also racialization of Muslims and its application to the Ottomans in a different context. In this case, um, Muslims are evil, like the Ottomans, because they are oppressing the Christian subjects, and Indians are watching this. So the the the, the globalization are actually creating a connection between. British discourses of on the Ottomans, Glastonian discourses of the Ottomans as barbaric Muslims oppressing Christians, and they rule over large Muslim populations in India. Just before that, it was actually in Britain's interest that they established connection between Indian Muslims and the Ottomans because Ottomans are Britain's friends, and if the if the Sultan Caliph is a friend of the Queen, then it, the Queen is more legitimate. In fact, there is this one episode where uh, just uh, during 1877-78 war, um, British uh, Ambassador Layard and uh, the Viceroy of India, Lytton, um, has a plan with the Ottomans to, to send an Ottoman delegation who is offended to Afghanistan to tell the, the Afghan king that they should ally with the British and the Ottomans against the Russians. An Afghan king says that, you know, I'm honored with this visit by the caliph, but I should like to note that it's the British who occupied my, my cities. The Russians didn't do anything to me. So there's this Russophobic uh, Muslim unity endorsed and ensured by the British. And British is, of course, is the biggest part of the Muslim unity. And in, in Abdulhamid's uh, pan-Islamism, we see, uh, in Abdulhamid, we see a desire to justify a return to the golden age of Ottoman-British alliance by making this case that uh, we need to have a special relationship because British rules 40% of wars Muslim as the greatest Mohammedan empire. And I, as the caliph, sultan, has a spiritual sovereignty over, uh, uh, over these Muslims through Mecca Medina. It's a very implicit assumption, but he, he makes this case through uh, this very uh, amazing figure, uh, Abdullah Killiam, William Killiam, who is a British Muslim, who then Abdulhamid's appoints as Sheikh al-Islam of the British Islands. And he acts like a, another ambassador, right? The Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. is an ambassador, initially a Greek. But he speaks on behalf of the Ottoman Empire with the, with the notion of double loyalty, that these two empires need to be closed. Mm-hmm. And, and we see that argument over and over repeated by people like Winston Churchill, saying that you know, as two greatest Muslim empires, we need to have a special relationship. So Abdulhamid could not have seen that pan-Islamism, which was supposed to justify the Ottoman-British alliance, will be used against the British um, in, at the entrance of the World War I. That's why he was actually, it seems like he was very upset. He called uh, Ittihad islam something that has ism but without jism, that has name without a body. It, it, he basically noted, you know, he wasn't the sultan anymore, but it basically indicated that he invented this geopolitical argument, but not in the way the young Turks were using it, 
in an anti-British, pro-German manner in 1914. So uh, the book makes the case that we should not read Abdul Hamid from the perspective of the 1914. Just look at the context and what he was trying to do. How did the idea of the Muslim world transform after the fall of the Ottomans? So actually, half of the book is about that. Um, that that notion uh, in which subaltern Indian Muslims had a lot a big role to play um, survived a century. That you know we thought it will fade away with nationalism, but it came back, and it th- this this trajectory in the twentieth century is, is 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 fascinating. So it makes the case that actually Ataturk and and the Turkish War of Independence return back to Abdul Hamid's use of pan-Islam. Mm. So the Hilafat movement. It makes this very Abdul Hamid gesture. That don't do jihad, pressure London to support us, but also send us uh, financial support. So before the rise of the Arab money, Indian Muslims were considered the kind of um, uh, cash cow of the Ummah, that they will they will provide funds and, and give money. They were the wealthiest and the most populous part of the Muslim, uh, imagined Muslim world. And that actually worked for to support uh, as a background for the Lausanne and to support Turkish War of Independence in in a way that Turkish diplomats gained a lot out of Lausanne um, and British compromise because they they mobilized the Muslim world in, in their own way. But after mobilizing and and succeeding and and seeing Lausanne as a Muslim triumph and and highly celebrated, um, there there is a, this important decision to abolish the caliphate. Uh, which made Indian Muslims felt betrayed because you know, that was the peak of their mobilization. Uh, Hindus and, and Sikhs and many people were, were also joined that that moment. And could you explain about, for, for our listeners who are coming in from without that background, what you mean by the abolition of the caliphate after um, the declaration of Turkish independence? Yeah, so in uh, uh, in first, uh, the Ottoman dynasty was abolished, but there's a member of the Ottoman dynasty was kept as, as some sort of a spiritual caliph mm-hmm. um, for uh, for a brief period of time, but in March second, nineteen twenty four, so it's almost hundred years ago, uh, Turkish Parliament had a debate and they decided that this uh, remnant of the dynasty uh, as a caliph uh, uh, represents the kind of obsolete institutions, is overused, over abused, over exploited. Um, it also doesn't fit the, the kind of vision that the Republic had. So the debate is, is fascinating. And, and, and there's a lot of uh, Muslim religious textual arguments from Sharia um, that they use the classical theory of the caliphate, which ironically anti-Ottoman propaganda was using during World War One, saying that the Ottoman claim to caliphate is irrelevant because they're not from the, the Qureshi tribe. So the, uh, the young Turkish Republic used these anti-Ottoman propaganda uh, teams to abolish mm-hmm. the caliphate. Um, at that moment, there, there was uh, there is this kind of crisis and a self-reflection of what do we do without the caliphate, which means that it became very important. And uh, Mona Hassan just wrote a book on that moment, and it's, it came out of Princeton University. Mm. Maybe a good podcast interview. We, topic. We'd love to do um, that. Uh, so they, uh, but after afterwards, people moved on. I mean, that also shows. Uh, they didn't follow the caliph in exile. Uh, the, the caliph himself said that we should actually meet, a con- you know, organize a congress to elect one, but they couldn't. Mm-hmm. But it seems that the imperial part, the Ottoman Istanbul part, 
was as important as the religious part of that. Mm. That Abdul Hamid was also a Khan. That they is remembered as Abdul Hamid Khan. Yeah. Uh, that is, is, is a legendary Hakan and Han. So we even then in the caliphate's reputation, this this amazing balance the Ottomans established the Tanzimat modernism, the imperial lineage and prestige, and and the protection of the holy cities all ended up creating that institutions. Uh, but we shouldn't forget that in 1924 the Ottomans did not have any of these primary estates: sure. Jerusalem, Mecca, Medina, and Najaf. They're all gone. That they, they were protecting it. So the, 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 during the decolonization, uh, do, do we see a fading away of this institution? Initially, it survived only within the British Empire. So the Palestine question and the Indian Muslims right. continue that kind of pan-Islamic um, uh, mode of thinking, but that's sort of pan-Islamism within empire. But post-World War II, and, and it, it gets a quick revival, uh, illusionary revival during, the, during World War II, but the Germans, Japanese, and the Italians also tried to replicate what they did in World War One, what the Germans and Ottomans did by trying to incite the Muslim revolt against yeah. the empires, which also fails. Um, so from f- forty-seven or forty-eight to almost nineteen seventies, um, that kind of pan-Islamism is actually almost uh, disappearing. There's memories of it, there are references to it. But we'll look at the characters like Nasser, um, yeah. uh, Sukarno, Musatuk. Uh, they, they're involved in uh, different forms of internationalism and nationalist politics. Mm-hmm. There's, of course, the Kamalist model of republic. Um, so then why did it come back? And so the, the last chapter of the book deals with this template being reproduced yeah. by King Faisal and American alliance in the regional and the global Cold War uh, against Russia. Right. Uh, so there's sort of a, a repetition of a pattern that if right. the first M- Muslim world and pan-Islamism was an Ottoman-British alliance against Russia, mm-hmm. then in 1914 going anti-British in the form of a mm-hmm. jihad. This, this repetition of it in the Cold War is, is that the Saudi king almost appears as Abdul Hamid of the Cold War, uh, as a new caliph, uh, creating a new Muslim network and memory, you know, a new form of pan-Islamism uh, anti-communist, but also anti-Nasser mm-hmm. with America, but turning anti-American after Camp David. So the kind of an interesting repetition of history, but with many changes, obviously. that yeah. The changes are as important, because in the second one, it's the Arab world is, is the center. In the first one, Indian Muslims are the right. center. Right, yeah. So to, to, to recap, you have uh, centers and notion of the Muslim world taking shape uh, around South Asia, also around the Ottoman Empire, of course, especially under Abdul Hamid II, and then it's sort of utilized during the First World War for a different purpose. Then in this interwar period, um, sort of the beginnings of nationalism and nation-states, you see this as sort of fading as a, as a very meaningful political ideology, right? These states like Turkey, Iran, yes. Afghanistan, that would have been very important to this notion of the Muslim world really uh, take a different tra- trajectory. And of course, Nasser's Egypt and, and these, these other sort of, as you say, um, internationalism or transnational no. solidarities that aren't based on Islam become very important. So let's just give our listeners a little preview. We don't have a lot more time, but yeah, tell us about that Cold War context. Um, you, you, you've alluded to it just a little bit here, but um, I want to get a clear sense of how this uh, notion of the Muslim world comes back strong in the Cold War, particularly through the um, U.S.-Saudi alliance and particularly 
you know, geopolitically thinking about the competition with the U.S. and the USSR, how that takes shape and, and, and how it sort of turns in a way. So that's a very important uh, theme of the, of the book, saying that the narrative that is constructed in the age of high imperialism, a racialized mm -hmm. narrative, but also becomes a civilizational narrative, a narrative of Islam and the West, is being transferred from one generation to another and have a life beyond the political context of, of, of its initial construction. Um, and this, this is a question, you know, as a, as a Muslim to think about, too, that um, why is a set of ideas and narratives from one generation to another um, gained a new political meaning, but not, it was not questioned, was not self-reflected, um, how how did it survive? So maybe we can cut some some parts of it out. But uh, initially, when I was I started this project, I traced pan-Islam with pan-Africanism and pan-Asianism. Mm. Uh, so they are siblings. They emerge around the same time, eighteen eighties. It's kind of racialization of globalization, the kind of re-regionalization of of the global moment. Um, and actually, comparisons with pan-Islam and pan-Africanism show how how this is racial. Right? That. Then I was going to do again all three of them after World War II. But then one thing that that stood out is that among the three, um, pan-Islam came back. There's legacies of pan-Asianism, pan-Africanism, but it's easier to deconstruct. Uh, the idea of Asian and African unity, saying that well, it's, it was a, it was an invention, and we used it. It was useful. It helped decolonization, um, but there's a new configuration. We can just move on. Um, but for for pan-Islamism, because I think it, the racialization, not through skin color but religion, was harder to overcome and forget that it was a different form of racialization. It, it seems for natural, right? The right. Muslims. That biological yeah. race. Determinism, you know, became yeah. widely critiqued and, you know, was no longer legitimate, yeah. you know, by the 70s, for example, at least, at yeah. least in that sense, to, to that extent on the global scale. But this conflation of race and religion enables, you know, the endurance in a way of yes. these generalizations. So the new actors in, in post-war period and the memories of old, old templates uh, then uh, reinvent this, this this story in a, mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a Cold War context. So one, one could say that, well, you know, there isn't much time from 1924 to 1965 to 70. So like some of the people are around. I mean, they are carrying, yeah. with, even with their bodies, um, this, this memory of, of, of old pan-Islam being redesigned. And there are questions that, that actually symbolizes the continuity, like the Palestine mm -hmm. question, or or the use of Islam in the West during the peak of decolonization, the Algerian re Revolution. How French always depicted the nationalist Algerians as fanatic pan-Islamic Muslims mm -hmm. resisting Western civilization. So, on both sides, in the racialization side, but also the pan-Islamic Muslim side, yeah. uh, the old tropes could be continued. Um, but the the focus that I, I wanted to have is that how uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, against Nasser, the fear of, of, of course, the socialist bloc and so many Arab post-colonial Arab regimes are on the side of the Soviet Union. Um, wanted to have a different form of internationalism to legitimize Saudi monarchy, which, which was under threat from Nasser's yeah. nationalism. 
And there they established the, the Medina uh, Islamic University, Muslim World League, some of the institutions were being built. Um, and then some of the, the gestures are, for example, creating a Muslim bloc at the United Nations. It's a different form of internationalism. It's not empires. It's the post-colonial Muslim nations that in 1975, in that like peak of 1970s pan-Islamism, uh, as a bloc voted uh, that uh, Zionism is racism in support of Palestine, together with socialists in the third world countries. Uh, was some sort of a vision of, of King Faisal, which was not necessarily anti-American hmm. uh, in his own way. Um, so there's a refashioning of that old memories and old narratives to support the Palestinian cause. And I think Camp David, in that sense, becomes another turning point where um, it's almost like a Lausanne that uh, Amr Sadat benefits a lot from this global pressure of the new pan-Islamism, third world internationalism, socialism, uh, to get a deal for Egypt mm -hmm. at Camp David. But he uh, he doesn't resolve the, the core of the question, Palestine, uh, which then leaves pan-Islamism that, that emerged in the 70s uh, with, with a great dissatisfaction. Right. And at that moment is followed by 1980s, the Ghanif forces, especially after the Iranian revolution. Yeah. That, that the new Iranian government then takes it up, right. uh, utilizes against America, and then we, we enter into this chaos of the 1980s. Right? right. Yeah, the story goes in a lot of directions, one of them being Afghanistan, of course, yeah. uh, where, you know, the whole Cold War context uh, and including, you know, the Saudis in the picture and all that does sort of, you know, come into the frame and, and, and brings us really close actually to the present beyond your book in a way. Yeah. If you if you think about the the legacy of the the history of this Cold War period, but in in that I'm glad you reminded Afghanistan. But in the new in the new context, sectarianism comes in. Uh, in, in in the time of Abdelhamid, there is no sectarianism. In fact, actually, pan-Islam provides this secular racial umbrella under which all the um, sects felt very comfortable. Uh, the Islamic sects, you mean? Yes. The, the, we shouldn't call them sects. I mean, we have a scholar of religious studies here. We, we have, Druze can be pan-Islamic, right. like Sheikh Ibrahim. Um, Shia could join the Ottoman Jihad. Um, Ismailis, you know, there's this famous incident of uh, Sayyid Amir Ali and Aga Khan writing letters to yeah. the, the Turkish government in Ankara, asking them not to abolish the caliphate. And one would ask, one is a Shiite, the other is an imam of the Ismailis. Like, why are they so worried about the caliphate? Right, there's a Sunni institution that that illustrates mm -hmm. the kind of racialized moment for the significance for Indian Muslims in, in a very complex ways. And both of them are also loyalists to the British. So why are they wanting the caliphate to be preserved? But in Cold War pan-Islamism, especially after the Iranian Revolution, in order to create a firewall around Iran, uh, then the Saudis had to play. Uh, and Americans played this Shia-Sunni distinction, and Afghanistan basically gave them an opportunity. Uh, story is still very complex in the yeah. sense that uh, opportunity to prove is is almost anti-Russian in the Cold War. Um, the the complex part of the story, of course, in the 1980s moment, there is also the European New Left, which feels very guilty about the crimes and and the, the violence of the some of the socialist regimes come to the support of the Afghan resistance. So the Afghan Jihad does not only have the Americans, but also right. the kind of international NGOs and humanitarians. And 
Uh, Timothy Noonan was uh, a Harvard Academy fellow probably in this office last year, uh, wrote a beautiful book on this, on the kind of humanitarian invasion and the importance of Afghanistan as a turning point. And his new project is dealing with the issue of this divergence of Shia, Sunni, pan-Islamic internationalism in the 80s. So there are some differences. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. We're here talking to Jamil Aydin about his new book, The Idea of the Muslim World, out this year from Harvard University Press. You've historicized the idea of the Muslim world in depth, but you've also criticized uh, it, the idea today, there being a lot of divisions on sectarian lines that started in the 80s, as you mentioned. Would you say that this imagined idea of the Muslim world has come into being today? And if not, what are alternatives to understanding these geopolitical connections? Uh, no, thank you. The, I mean, the idea of the Muslim world today is more than alive. I think Donald Trump is uniting Muslims in America, clearly. Some sort of re-racialization of Muslims that uh, that Edward Said's book on Orientalism was actually indicating. It's 78, it's a kind of Arab-Israeli war. But even Edward Said was actually shocked how re-racialization got worse, right? He wrote another book called Covering Islam After the Iranian Revolution. Um, because, I, I, you know, that's one of the paradoxes that Edward Said is actually deconstructing the idea of Islamic civilization and, and the kind of, uh, he's, he's criticizing the colonial legacies, but actual politics in the 1980s through mass media made the situation worse and created this divergence between American academia being very critical and deconstructing the idea of Muslim world, but American public knowledge or the American European media is is going back to the older tropes of racializing Muslims. And we are probably still living the legacy of that uh, divergence. Um, today, I think what we are seeing is that once the re-racialization of Muslims happen in Europe and America and in a global context, because it has a symbiotic relationship with pan-Islamic internationalism, then it, it also kind of privileged the, the, the kind of uh, global Muslim rethinking of, of, of that their unity is needed. That if there is nobody thinking about their rights, uh, that they should take care of themselves. And, and I think that's one thing that I, I, I wish I could write more about it because many of the characters in my book look, uh, some of the political characters, uh, looks like they're all bad characters. Right? They're utilizing this idea at the expense of the oppressed subaltern Muslims for geopolitical purposes, and most of the time they're dumping it. The Ottomans and Turks, and um, then uh, you know, the interwar period uh, nationalist, then Saudis. You know, there's some sort of very um, critical reading of, of the geopolitics of it. Uh, one major group is, of course, the colonized, oppressed subaltern Muslims who were discriminated by racializations that they needed to talk back and they needed to ask for their rights. And at some point, they thought this was a tool of collective bargaining. And they actually use this term. It's like a collective bargaining, that if you are if, if you're a, a colonized Muslim in Senegal or in India, you're too weak, too small, and British or the French or the Russians are too strong. But if you ally, it's a form of international ally with other Muslims, their population, their... Uh, political power, then you can pressure your oppressors 
to free you, or you can also negotiate with them to gain more rights. So you could see how uh, a form of the, Mus the Muslim world-based pan-Islamism is a form of empowerment for um, uh, subaltern Muslims. But what I urge people to reflect on is the history of this concept, and if they're using it as a tool, to be aware that this is a tool for, uh, uh, for making claims for rights and dignity and equality. And, and, they, and then also realize that that same tool is also an instrument of their racialization, so they can decide what to do with it, like this, this paradox um, that, they, that, that we are dealing with. So if, let's say, against the Trump, uh, Trump's Muslim ban, if all the Muslims say, let's get together and, and, and we, we unite the Ummah to, to, to defeat that racism, I don't think it will work. I think that we are seeing perhaps in America a new form of politics of what we call the intersectionality, um, where we, we try to clarify what this is all about and try to, uh, to fight for, for people's rights without essentializing and racializing them. Um, this also existed in the past. I think my first book talked about it and how uh, early pan-Islamists were actually allies of pan-Africanists and pan-Asianists and their politics is very different. There, nobody in early pan-Islamism trying to impose Sharia on non-Muslims or, uh, or to try to interfere in people's daily lives and that kind of Cold War conservative Islamism wasn't even there in the first instance. And you know, Ottoman sultans... Uh, cultural life and their their pride in, in creating and preserving a cosmopolitan empire, which totally ended with disaster with, with uh, Armenian genocide and the Greek-Turkish population exchange. But initial um, uh, admiration for the Ottomans also came from the fact that they are inclusive and they are cosmopolitan. They are a better empire. And the Indian Muslims will always uh, give this example that the Ottoman government have non-Muslims, but the British government doesn't have any Hindus and Muslims. And that's um, so we, perhaps today, coming back to today's period, a self-reflection for contemporary Muslims on, on the history of this term will help for their struggle for justice for, for those uh, subaltern Muslims. It will also help to critique some Muslim politicians who are still relying on this framework, uh, right, that... Turkish prime minister talks for the Muslim unity, and, and then the Syrian does that, Iranian, and the Saudis. They all talk about Muslim unity, as if Muslims is, is a herd of sheep with no politics. They would just follow these leaders, right? Uh, it's very apolitical to think that Muslims are united, like one and a half billion people, no gender, no class, no ideology, no economic and social interests. I mean, it, it, it's a fantastical tool that, that also a lot of dictators can use in, in, in like. And and to I think this reflection will also help uh, you know this Aleppo moment right and it should be the graveyard of any unreflective call for Muslim unity because both sides in Aleppo use pan-Islamism in different forms even and both sides have have non-Muslims in it too right the, the, the Syrian Iranian alliance talks about Muslim unity within Syria and. And the Sunni alliance also have that. And look what, what they created. Actually, the more you make that claim for Muslim unity, the more divisions you end up perpetuating because you get angry at, at all. You're not following that Muslim unity. And it's better to actually take politics seriously uh, and, and realize that the Muslims are 
many things at the same time and and and, and give politics a chance rather than making these undifferentiated calls for for unity. Well, thank you, Jamil. This has been a great discussion. We've covered a lot of ground, really. Um, it's, it's been a wide-ranging discussion, and we haven't even scratched the surface of a lot of the content in your book. We really do encourage our listeners to check the book out, especially for you know to, to read up on, on all these great uh, episodes and moments uh, you cover in the book. Pictures and maps. And pictures and maps. Some um, We have some on our webpage, autumnhistorypodcast.com as well. Thanks for coming on the program. Well, thank you for this uh, great conversation. Now, we're going to leave our listeners with a short bonus clip. It's about five minutes with Michael Talbot, our own Michael Talbot, recording on location in Yokohama, Japan, about the story of the Air to Rule, an Ottoman ship that undertook a goodwill mission to East Asia during the late 19th century. Jamil, certainly a, a topic of your own interest and certainly one relevant uh, to today's discussion. Um, now for the listeners, uh, you're only going to hear Michael's clip, but if you go to our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com, or go to our SoundCloud page, you'll also hear the clip with a short added response by our own Jamil Iden. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Michael Talbot, and today I'm in Yokohama, Japan, a few miles south of the capital city, Tokyo. This might seem like a rather strange place to be talking about Ottoman history, but here, in 1890, an important episode in Ottoman diplomacy took place. For three months, June to September of that year, the Ottoman warship, the frigate Ertuğrul, docked in the great port here at Yokohama. Today, it is a modern city, dominated by skyscrapers, but in the neighbourhoods around the port you can still get a sense of the older town, and the harbour is still full of ships. The Ertuğrul had been dispatched from Istanbul almost a year earlier on a friendship mission from Sultan Abdulhamid II to the Meiji Emperor. Japanese warships, ambassadors and dignitaries had visited Istanbul a number of times in the 1870s and 1880s. After all, although separated by significant distance, Japan and the Ottoman Empire had much in common in terms of both imperial and anti-imperialist interests. Commercial treaties and military alliances had been discussed. It was after the visit to Yildiz Palace of a Japanese prince to Abdul Hamid II in 1887 that the Ottoman government decided to invest in a return visit. The Ertuğrul, a dependable if somewhat aging three-masted frigate, was appointed for the task along with its commander, Osman Pasha, and crew of several hundred sailors. The journey took the Ertuğrul through the Suez Canal, with stopping points on both sides of the Red Sea, before heading out into the Indian Ocean. The reception that the ship received en route to Japan exceeded all expectation, and perhaps reveals an alternate rationale for the mission beside that of building Ottoman-Japanese relations. In a letter sent to the Ottoman government by Osman Pasha, the ship's commander, from Singapore in December 1889, he claimed that his ship, which, quote, represents the glory and might of the Imperial Navy in the distant waters of the East, end quote, attracted significant attention from Muslims from all over Southeast Asia, most notably those living under Dutch and British colonial dominion, particularly those under Dutch rule in Java and Sumatra, and those also subject to the King of Siam. They came to complain of the treatment they received from their rulers and to plead for the intercession of the Ottoman Sultan as their caliph. 
It was, Osman Pasha explained, as if the ship had become a point of pilgrimage for oppressed Muslims, and he requested that the ship be permitted to stop in a number of Southeast Asian ports on its return voyage, including the Dutch colonial capital in Batavia, today's Jakarta, where a sizable Muslim community was gathering around the Ottoman consul. The Erterol continued on to Saigon, and finally arrived in the great port at Yokohama in June 1890. On arrival, the ship and its commander were greeted by the Meiji Emperor and his court retinue, and the gifts sent by Sultan Abdul Hamid II were presented. In their three-month stay here in Yokohama, the officers were treated to seemingly endless rounds of audiences, receptions, banquets and parties, and no doubt the regular crew of the ship found time to enjoy themselves too in the bustling port, although, perhaps unsurprisingly, the archives are rather silent on their day-to-day -day shenanigans. All good things must come to an end, and after a successful mission, in mid-September, the Erterol set off on its homeward itinerary voyage. However, just three days afterwards, the ship encountered a huge storm on the coast of Kashimoto, a few hundred miles down the coast from here, and the ship sank with the loss of most of its crew, including its commander, Osman Pasha. The population in the area did their best to rescue the stricken sailors, but only 70 survived. Today, a monument commemorates this event, which also marks the site of the cemetery of the Ottoman sailors whose bodies were recovered and buried there. The Erterol never got to finish its Asian mission, but it presents a tantalising historical what-if. Instead, memory of the disaster, such as there is memory of it, tends to overshadow memory of the mission itself. Part symbol of Ottoman naval abilities and aspirations, part pan-Islamic standard-bearer in the waters of Southeast and East Asia, part token of friendship between two old but distant Asian powers, the Erterol's stay in the port here at Yokohama is an important episode in late Ottoman diplomacy and foreign policy, and reminds us that there were alternative visions for the global balance of power in the late 19th century beyond that of European domination, emanating from the Japanese and Ottoman empires. Although there is no monument to the visit of the Erterol here in Yokohama, perhaps through researching its mission, we can keep its memory alive.